Welcome to the Martinskirk Podcast, a publication of sermons and lessons from Trinity Reformed Church of Martinsburg. Trinity Reformed exists to declare the victory of Jesus Christ through worship and practice to the ends of the earth. To learn more about our congregation, visit martinskirk.com. Now it's often difficult to believe Jesus' words when he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. Remember those words that he said to the to the apostles. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's almost unthinkable for some of us to even suggest that we have it better than the apostles did, right? The apostles got to see Jesus face to face in the flesh. They they listened to his teachings in person. They traveled with him. They witnessed his signs. They ate with him. They joked with him, right? We want to experience those events in person, to see him in the flesh ourselves. At least we think we do. We don't realize how hard it was for them. But Jesus says that it is to the apostles' advantage that he go away so that he can send to them his helper, a helper to help them in their work for Christ's sake, his Holy Spirit. And in this famous passage in John chapter 20, the passage we just read, our focus is often on the unbelief of St. Thomas, who after, after the disciples had received the, the Spirit from Jesus and received his authority to forgive and retain sins, said that he would only believe that Jesus was raised from the grave if he saw the nail prints for himself, if he reached his hand in his side himself. And this is the primary focus that many give to this passage, and rightly so. Right? It's a glaring thing to read. Thomas's unbelief. It is a main focal point. But Thomas's unbelief is not the only point to this passage. Did Thomas doubt the word of the twelve? He, cer- he certainly did. It's explicit here. But we also have to realize that the disciples were said to have been glad when they saw the Lord only after the Lord had showed them his nail-scarred hands and his pierced side. And Thomas, by the Lord's providence, whatever reason was unable to worship with the saints on that Lord's day and was unable to be there to experience the Lord in person, the Lord's appearing. And he wanted the same experience as the rest of the disciples. The Lord had breathed the Holy Spirit out on his disciples and Thomas wanted that as well. But what we will see here this morning is that the blessedness of God is poured out on his people by his word and his spirit. He creates with his word and his spirit. This is exactly how he creates his church and the purpose for which his church is created, word and spirit. God has created his church anew with his word and spirit so that the world may believe Jesus is the son of God, be forgiven their sins and granted life in his name. So in this way, we too, we too experience what the disciples experience. If we are in Christ, we experience that same thing. We have the Holy Spirit breathed on us by the word of God. Even more than this, because we have believed the word of God given to us through the witness of the apostolic church and have not seen the Lord face to face, we are counted, according to Jesus, blessed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now the setting of this passage, the setting of this passage toward the end of the Gospel of John is at the evening of the first day of the week. Now, if you remember from our past experience with John's writings, when he mentions a date, it's important, right? 
the first day of the week. Just a few verses prior, Mary Magdalene saw Jesus in the garden near his empty tomb. And she mistook him for what? A gardener. She mistook him for a gardener. So we have a new Adam. <coughs> Excuse me. We have a new Adam in a new garden with a new woman. Then this woman <coughs> goes to tell the disciples all that, that he had spoken to her. He goes to tell the disciples all that, he had seen, all that she had seen and all that he had spoken to her. And then we see, on the same day at evening, the disciples hiding in a closed upper room, just as the Garden of Eden was the upper portion of the land of Eden. Except they were hiding for the fear of the Jews. Instead of Adam and his bride hiding from the Lord in the garden due to their shame and guilt, we have a new humanity hiding not from the Lord, but from a serpent who seeks to devour them. Their hiding is not cowardly, but righteous and good. And the Lord comes to dwell with them, not in the cool of the day, but in the night, in the hardest times of their lives. Now, it needs to be said that this is often an event shrouded with a lot of mystery and speculation. What I mean by that is if you'll notice that the doors to this particular room are shut. They're shut. And John says that Jesus came and stood in the midst. Now, this is a passage from which we get the idea that Jesus walked through walls in his post-resurrection body. Now, I don't want to discourage you from that particular view. I think it's fine to believe that. I don't want to discourage you from it just because it sounds unbelievable. After all, the resurrection sounds unbelievable, right? But the Lord certainly raised on the third day. The Lord can do as he pleases. And many have used this passage to point out that the post-resurrection body is one that is even more solid, even more material than the world around us. C.S. Lewis makes this famous argument. The reason why he can do miraculous things like this after resurrection is because his body is more real than ours. He is more material, more true, which allows Jesus to walk through walls in such things. However, we have elsewhere in Acts chapter 12 an account of an apostle meeting a locked door and the door opening of its own accord. John not mentioning the door opening does not necessarily mean that Jesus walked through a closed door. It could, but both views are acceptable. So don't get hung up on this particular, whether it's a miracle or not. He appears in a closed room and it's locked for fear of the Jews. The point is that Jesus met with the disciples in the upper room where they gathered to worship him and they did so secretly. And he said, peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his side where the nail and the spear prints were. And the disciples were said to have been glad to see the Lord. They were glad when they saw the Lord. The Lord proved to them that he was in fact the risen Christ. And then the disciples respond in gladness. And after this, Jesus again says, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, also I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them, gave them the Holy Spirit, as well as the authority to forgive and to retain sins. Now, there's a couple of things we need to tackle here. Not not the trivial stuff of whether Jesus walked through walls, but the important stuff here. One, the breath of Christ given to the disciples, the Spirit of God given to the disciples. And then number two, the authority given to the disciples. 
So breath, or spirit, and authority. Those are the two things we need to discuss. So let's first start with the spirit, with breath. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that the Lord waters the earth. He forms man from the dust of the ground. And then he breathes life into them, life into him. And when the Lord breathes on his disciples, this is what he is doing. He's making them into something that they were not previously. He is giving them a new calling. Now, if you'll remember, all the way back to our last head of household meeting, we discussed one of the uh, topics for this year that we'll be covering a lot. It'll pop up here and there through our teaching and preaching is the topic of calling. What is our calling in the world that Christ has made for us? Well, here we have a new calling that is given to the disciples. And this is certainly the context, isn't it? This newness. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He's giving them a task to fulfill. As the Father has sent me, you are going to fulfill what I had started. So before he sends them to do the work of Christ in the world, he gives them his spirit to enable them to perform the work and to give them the authority to do it. So he enables them to do it, to accomplish it, and he gives them the authority to do it. Now, the disciples in the upper room included apostles, certainly, but it also included a multitude of disciples. It was a congregation, an assembly, followers of Jesus Christ. And these would have been apostles and elders in this new Israel, the new humanity animated by the Spirit of God to do the work of the Spirit-filled Christ in the world. And with this Spirit, Jesus gives his new people what are called the keys to the kingdom. The keys to the kingdom, to bind and to loose. This is what he gives his church. He gives them the authority to forgive the sins of any or to retain the sins of any. Now, we learned, if you were here for Sunday school this morning, that only God, only God can, can forgive sins. This is true. And this is the reason for this. The reason for this is that sins are ultimately against God and God alone. What, is, what does the psalmist say? David, against you and you only have I sinned, right? Sins are ultimately against God and him alone. Now, there are offended parties on earth. We can forgive one another for sins committed against one another, but we cannot forgive one another for sins committed against God. The offense that is against God can only be forgiven by God himself. So what does Jesus mean here? What does Jesus mean here? Well, to sum sum up a a, uh, prominent theologian, Matthew Henry, this is a general grant given to the church as a whole and to her ministers and elders as the stewards of the mysteries of God. It is not guaranteeing, I want you to hear this, it is not guaranteeing the infallibility of the church's judgments. This is not what it means. It does not mean that everything that the church says regarding your sin is infallibly true. It does not mean that any particular man, myself or the elders or the deacons or whoever, it does not mean that our judgments are infallible. But it is a promise that if these men are led by the wisdom of the word of Christ and the Holy Spirit, their words will be as God's words. That is what it means. That we have the authority with the Holy Scriptures and with the Spirit of God to make those judgments, to forgive the sins of any, to retain the sins of any. And the reason why Jesus speaks this plainly about forgiveness and retention being found in the judgments of the church is to grant us 
assurance of faith. It's not to be, for us to be scared of the church, but to grant us assurance. It is meant to confirm in us our faith in Christ. So, for example, when I pronounce the forgiveness of sins in the absolution, which we just heard a few minutes ago, it is not me who is forgiving you. I cannot forgive you of your sins. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry because God forgives you. I cannot forgive you. God forgives you of your sins. So when you hear those words, I declare to you the full forgiveness of all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The promise of forgiveness is truly there, ready to be taken by faith. That is what is being promised to you. This is the church offering the forgiveness of sins to you. Through the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The promise is God's, and it is you who receive it by faith. You can believe the words of men because they are backed by the promises of God. That's where the authority comes from. Jesus gives the keys to the kingdom to the church for the confirmation and assurance of your faith. When you hear the church speak, if it is by the word of God, it is Christ speaking to you. So you can truly believe that you are forgiven all your sins if you receive it by faith. And this is why Thomas's disbelief of the apostles' words is so egregious. This is why the church has focused so much and given him that terrible name, Doubting Thomas, right? I think many people are a bit too hard on him in the past. In fact, he's actually one of my favorite disciples or apostles. But John Calvin actually is one of those who's probably a bit too hard. One of my favorite quotes from John Calvin is, quote, the, the stupidity of Thomas was astonishing and monstrous, end quote. He did not pull punches regarding Thomas's unbelief. But this is also the reason why I love Thomas so much. In Thomas's unbelief, we have confirmation of our own belief. In Thomas's unbelief, we have confirmation of our own belief and our own faith. Thomas needed to see the Lord. But we, having not seen him, yet believe. Now, how often do we doubt the goodness and mercy of God without first seeing it face to face? We have to see to believe, right? How often do we do that? We forget the word and the promises of God. The word passed down to us from the apostles and prophets. When things get tough, or more likely when things are easy, we forget them. And Thomas, hearing the disciples recount their experience with the Lord Jesus, says, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And what do we see happen? Jesus could have said, okay, don't believe them. Go on your way. What do I care? You should have believed the apostles, right? But what do we see happen but that the Lord Jesus putting his teaching to practice, going after the one, going after the one lost sheep. He comes again eight days later, a new week, and says once, peace to you. Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. He goes to the one. In the sight of all the company of the apostles and disciples, Jesus speaks directly to Thomas and addresses his unbelief. And he pulls him back to him. How many times 
have we followed in Thomas's footsteps of living lives and unbelief during the week, only to be pulled back on Sunday morning? Yes, we are followers of Christ. We are Christians. We are forgiven of our sins. But we often stray from the word that God has given us to follow. And we often stray from the lives that he has called us to live. And each week, on the eighth day, we meet here to see Jesus. Do we have the same humility as Thomas to receive our correction in the presence of all the saints? Do we hear the piercing word of God and turn from our unbelief, or do we still not see? In the worship of the saints, we come to be rebuked of our unbelief, to reach our hands into the side of Christ, to hold bread and wine. That's what that means. The body and blood of our Lord Jesus. To have our eyes opened by faith once again. Are we ready to hear and to see? And is this not what true faith is? Seeing with, or believing without seeing. Is this not what true faith is? Well, what is faith? Thankfully, the Lord has not left us in the dark on a definition, which is actually pretty unique if you think about it. He doesn't give a lot of definitions in the scriptures, but we do have a definition here. We have a definition very clearly in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The essence of things hoped for. The evidence or proof of things not seen. That is what faith is. The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. It is the essence. The very essence of things that we hope for. And it is the proof of things we do not see. Philosophers and theologians have opined on this definition for a couple thousand years now. But there is something simple for us to grasp in it. Something very simple for us to grasp. To have faith is to have the essence of the object of that faith. We hope for Christ, right? He is our hope. Faith is the instrument by which we receive Christ and the promises of Christ. And we truly have him by faith. Faith and hope go together. And by faith we possess the essence of that which we hope for. And it is also the proof or evidence of things we do not currently see. In other words, it is trust. It is trust. A trust that makes what is invisible to the eyes be visible to the soul. For example, think about it this way. Let's say your husband or your wife are on the other side of the world. Right? They're on the other side of the world. You can't see them. You can't call them and talk to them. They don't have cell phone service wherever they're at. Right? They're not visible to your eyes right now, but your trust, the mutual trust and faith that you have that is the foundation of your relationship and covenant before God keeps them a reality to you. They're still your husband or wife. And you know it. You know it in your bones. And it is similar to our, it's not one to one, but it's similar with our faith in Christ. We are in Christ and he is present in us through faith. Our faith in Christ is evidence of his promises to us. St. Peter puts it this way. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. 
Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is what it means to have the essence of what you hope for. If our hope is Christ, we truly have it already. Now, though these Christians do not see Christ, they love him and believe on him. They rejoice and they receive the end of their faith, the purpose of their faith, the salvation of their souls. It is theirs already. And this is why Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Through the faith of the church, the world experiences the evidence of the object that, of that which is invisible to them. They experience the evidence of the object of that which is invisible to them. And Jesus tells us this in John chapter 13. He says, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And what is our faith if it is not worked through love? Galatians 5, 6. We work our faith through love. And this faith is only wrought in us by the working of the Holy Spirit, whom is given to the church by Christ himself. And though Thomas was not there the week before to receive the Spirit, the Spirit was already at work in him when he responded to Jesus with the words, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And Jesus responds, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But again, how much more blessed are we who do not see and yet still cry out, My Lord and my God. This is what true faith is. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Though we hope for Christ's appearing, we see him even now by faith. Though we do not see Christ in person in the flesh just yet, we have the evidence that he is with us through faith and the working out of that faith through our love for one another. We, we know all of this because he has spoken to us. Through his word, we have the word of God. Now, John concludes this chapter with the fact that, that he could not record all of the signs that Jesus did. He wouldn't have enough ink, probably. He didn't have enough books to fill up for all the things that Jesus did in the presence of the disciples. But he compiled this gospel so that you and I, so that all of us, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you and I, we all, may have life in his name. To have life, we do not need to be physically close to Jesus. We simply must believe the witness of the apostles inspired by his Holy Spirit. Amen. Believe on Jesus Christ and you will have life and life abundantly. That is life everlasting in his name. And we meet here together for this particular purpose. That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the one whom the prophets had told and foretold about. The Son of God. And that believing we may have a life. You see, this passage is about the church being renewed by the Spirit of God. It is about the worship of the church in spirit and in truth. The Spirit and the Word of God. We meet together to share of that same Spirit. To be absolved of our sins to receive the word of Christ by faith, to cry out, my Lord and my God, to see the body and blood of our Lord Jesus by faith, 
and to be sent out into the world as the Father has sent our Lord before us. This is our purpose. But faith is the instrument by which we embrace the life of Christ. And as we see here, it is truly a gift of God. We are helpless without the help of Christ. He comes to us. He visits us by His Spirit and grants us life everlasting. And even when we are wayward, He comes to the One. And He brings us back. He lovingly and patiently tells each and every one of us, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do not fear. Christ is with you. Peace to you. Do not be anxious. Your help is near. Do not be unbelieving, but believe and receive the life and health of your Lord and your God. The signs that Christ has given his church should be enough for us. The word and the signs that he has given to his church should be enough for us. He has made a whole new people by his word, water, and spirit. He has given He's given all of us his holy word, the promise of the forgiveness of sins, the absolution of that promise in his church, the faith of fellow disciples around us, the witness of the spirit in our own individual lives and the faith of the church evident in her love for us and the promise of life abundant in the name of Christ. Even though we do not see him face to face just yet, We do not see him with our eyes. He is with us clearly and tangibly by his Holy Spirit. So do not doubt the word of God. There is no reason to. It is given to us that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we may have life in his name. So do not be unbelieving, but believing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.